Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Well, hello and welcome to Chef's Story. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today we are broadcasting from the International Culinary Center. And I'm very pleased and excited to greet my guest, Gabe McCacken. Oh, sorry, McMacken. <laughs> sorry, Gabe McMacken, um, who uh, I think probably everyone in New York City now knows is the Michelin-starred chef of the Finch, uh, but. Gabe really has one of those, I think, ideal backgrounds, and his um, his cooking experience has taken him everywhere from Roberta's to Blue Hill to Gramercy Tavern, and one of the ones that shocked me was Martha Stewart and all of that design. Somehow, I don't put Martha Stewart and Roberta in the same box. So, <laughs> I um, I can see you're a Renaissance man right off the bat. Welcome, Gabe. Well, it's it's very good to be here. And yeah, they're not necessarily in the same box. Um, <laughs> but what I was most excited about to kind of celebrate with. Um, both everybody at Martha Stewart and everybody at Roberta's and um, what I'm so excited to celebrate every uh, celebrate everywhere I go is the fun of making food. There is something wonderful about the way Martha does it. There's something that's wonderful about what, the way that everybody at Roberta's does it. Um, and to be able to jump in and play along was a wonderful opportunity. What so a well, great what a great perspective. You've really knit those two together. <laughs> no, you really you really have. Um so we'll get we'll get more granular on that a little later in the program. But I want to ask you, where did you spring from? <laughs> where did I spring from? Yes. Uh, well, I was born in Connecticut. Um in northwestern Connecticut. Um in uh, Waterbury, um, which is very close to the town I grew up in, Woodbury, Connecticut. Uh, my parents uh, had moved there to um, an old farmhouse on a bunch of acres next to a sheep farm and a dairy farm and um, a Catholic monastery or um, an order that was some 300 acres um, in the early 70s um, and chose to make their life there. Um, I was born in 75, uh, first of four children, um, and we were excited to kind of explore. Um, my mother had a little gardening business, and um, my father had a, a bunch of different uh, work that kept him in New York and then out in uh, Stanford, Connecticut, in the banking industry. Um, but um, from everything that we could participate with in that part of the world, there were wonderful things, wonderful things to eat, to do, 
um, to go get lost, to go swimming, to do everything um, that uh, we could to explore that part of the world. It's a gorgeous part of the world, for sure. Yeah. Um, so tell me, what were your earliest food memories? Um, there is a distinct memory that I have of drinking out of an iced tea pitcher. Ooh, how old were you? I couldn't have been more than one and a half. Really? And my Whoa. mother was pouring it into my face. Well, uh, explain that. And I, there's <laughs> ah. a, actually an image that I remember seeing the bottom of the pitcher, and I wanted to drink really, really badly. And it was a you know probably a warm day, and I remember seeing the kind of uh, the sunlight hitting the bottom of the pitcher. Uh, as I was looking up through it. Whoa. Do you have other memories from that time in your life that are that vivid? Um, I have memories of um, tasting currants that were not fully ripe and how sour they were. I have memories of um, this perfect tomato that a uh, you know a yellow pear tomato that was uh, grown in a particular uh, part of the hill where we grew the tomatoes at that time, and it still remains. And I must have been three when I ate this tomato, the single most delicious tomato that I've ever had. Um, I remember um, driving down the side of the road and hearing from my father that that's where we were going to go and get the sumac from. Um, what did they do with the sumac? Uh, we made sumac tea sumac punch um and that yeah so were were your parents uh big foodies or uh or big farmers (laughs) i wouldn't say that they were big foodies or farmers but they were you know um enthusiastic about making things themselves um were enthusiastic about the world around them Mm -hmm. um both of them had lived on communes i was Um, well i was gonna go there next i mean because it was the 70s and yeah um from uh you know my father lived in Buckminster Fuller's commune for a little while oh really and, uh, you know th- there were ways of um kind of working together to do things that they really believed in and doing things the natural way or using what you had around you from um my uh mother was the oldest of 11 children so you really did work with what you had from making your own clothes to um um, they made their own plates and dishes. Uh, my grandfather was a ceramicist and a sculptor who moved here from Italy when he was uh, 17 um, and was a professor uh, in Washington, D.C. at Catholic U. And so they made what they used. Um, so we would um, make what we could. And it was the best stuff that we could get our hands on. And it was wonderful. So did you... Was there sort of a not I, I hate to say hippie culture but was there a very open culture in your family of l- living off the land and um, I mean I'm trying to get my arms around it you said your your mother was a music teacher at yeah. a Montessori school so there was yeah. that openness to learning styles and things like that it's so experiential learning so would you say that that was kind of your upbringing and did you cook yeah absolutely i think experiential learning is one of the things that i i feel most proud of from my uh early years in my education and my 
uh, parents what what they instilled in me. And you know, through a liberal arts education, the thing that is most precious is learning through doing and learning through that sense of uh, exploration. So, um, whether it was hey, you know, go outside and find something to do, or here, go in the kitchen, it's raining outside, and cook something, there was that encouraged sense of find something that's pleasurable, find something that's enriching or fulfilling. Um, And whether that has um, kind of hippie connotations or not, I think it's real. Mm. Um, It's the pleasure of living and, Mm -hmm. um, and of doing and of sharing. Mm-hmm. And that was very much encouraged. So when you were in high school, what kind of things were you interested in? What kind of things in high school was I interested in? Were you still in Connecticut at that stage? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I lived at home through high school. Um, and uh, after high school, you know, took a year off between high school and college and um, worked in restaurants in Connecticut and then uh, lived in Prague for a while. In Prague? Oh. Yeah. Why? Because uh, I could, because I had an opportunity to go and do data entry for um, an aerospace engineering firm that uh, there was an offer on the table, so I took it. Wow. It was great. Yeah. Um, but in high school, what was I interested in? I was interested in cooking for friends. I was interested in music. I was interested in uh, interested in girls, interested in theater and art in um uh, driving really fast and smoking pot and all the things that I think everybody. <laughs> so you were really normal, is. yeah. <laughs> but um, but there was a sense of sharing things with my friends and of making something that was not perhaps a performance but an inclusive experience, and that's I think uh, 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 something that I I feel very grateful f- to my parents and to my. Um, early education for kind of instilling in me is that if I have something that I'm excited to do and I want to present it and share it with people maybe there's a right way, maybe there's a wrong way, but I can try any number of thousands of permutations if it's wanting to cook an omelet for somebody how many ways are that I cook a beautiful omelet and say, I made this for you Mm -hmm. that kind of a thing in high school, whether it was throwing a party or um, you know, going camping there was a an enthusiasm that I I got for those things that um, that made me really really excited. Who were some of your um, who are the people that you looked up to that you didn't know? Not necessarily real life people, but in in the world and when you were growing up in high school. Mm. Oh, um, you know I think that that's kind of like the hero question: Who are your heroes? Um, and you know like so many of the things like what are your greatest fears I never have a good answer because there's so many things that are that are wonderful to aspire to or um, you know that I I hope to instill in in my children um, the people that I have always been most inspired by do things really well but that isn't firm or hard in a certain way it's not like somebody could do th- something you know, this idea of perfection is sort of vague and nebulous to me it's like really it's only perfect for you know one way of looking at it like not that there's a flaw but there's something that's equally beautiful that could come after Mm. so for me that sense of um a beautiful song is a moment in time 
And making another song can be just as beautiful. And the process of practicing, of rehearsing, of meditating on that music or of um, meditating on that painting, whether it's the first time you've ever painted that thing that you're looking at or you've been trying to paint that bridge or that pair or that person you know, for a year, there's something beautiful about each one of those drafts. And for me seeing somebody who wrote something, painted something, made a song, or drove a car really fast, or is a great skier, there's something to learn from each of those people. I'm not, you know, saying that I didn't admire certain public figures, but I found that each one of those public figures could teach me something, and I was really impressed by that. Hmm. That's a, that's a very mature... <laughs> <laughs> for for um, uh, high school. Uh, so when did you, you know, I wish we had a lot of time to talk, but when did you first start understanding fine dining? Was it something your family, did you go out to fine restaurants? Or you, you started working in restaurants right after high school? Or did you work while you were in high school as well? Between my junior and senior year, I had a job uh, washing dishes uh-huh. at a restaurant. So you started washing dishes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's the best way to learn a sense of urgency. Right. And a sense of care for the stuff. Having a $50 plate and, you know, in your care and breaking it (laughs) is a great way to understand uh, what not to do. Right. Um, How did I learn about fine dining? Uh, We didn't go out to fine restaurants, per se, but every once in a while there was a really magical experience or there was a there was a fancy dinner that we'd cook at home or um, something that was, uh, you know, if we went out with friends or, you know, I would go out with another friend, you know, maybe there was something that was kind of magical about the way we ate. I always would look at the food that we were having with a sense of curiosity. How did that happen? What did that person do to make that thing so much better? than the other time I had it. The memories of, um, you know, I was just telling somebody about um, had this one dish that I had, which I have this incredibly powerful love in my mind of this one thing that every other time I've had it, it was just terrible. Chicken all king. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, I think I was at the dining hall of some school that my friend his parents were teachers at and I it was it was the meal that was there and it was just some magic combination of of all of the information happening at once I was like this is the best thing in the world <laughs> institutional yeah. yeah school food and it was every time I saw, I got told my mom I was like mom I had this amazing amazing thing you gotta make it and I was just like okay, have you tried to make it, it now no no. <laughs> I have not. I, I, I have certainly not, no. Oh, oh. All, right. All right. Well, we're going to continue on your journey in a minute, but we're going to take a break here. program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. 
The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Chef Story. And today, my guest is Gabe McMacken from The Finch in Brooklyn. And we're just, we're just getting to the beginning of his journey of being a chef. And Gabe, uh, you started in, in high school and then you worked in some fine dining establishments in Connecticut. But then you came to the city? Is that, I mean, what was your desire then? I mean, you're a Michelin-starred chef now. <laughs> I know you're left, but what was your, what was in your head when you came down from Connecticut and, you know, it's really tough here, the business is really tough. You knew it from, you know, in Connecticut too. You worked at good restaurants up there. Uh, where was your head then and what was the reality and what was you know, not the reality of what you thought. What's it like coming to New York? And well, it's a little. There was a little bit of bouncing around um, when I started in restaurants. You know, at seventeen, um, it was clear to me that this was a hard road to hoe. It is a challenging lifestyle choice. It is a challenging profession. It is a challenging business. Um, and it has to be one driven um, by passion and by craft and by, by all the things that um, kind of unite us outside of um, money or vacations or <laughs> um, all of the other things that uh, make life enriching. Um, there is a cognitive shift. There's a like a little bit of a vacuum chamber seal between life and the food business that we hope to get smaller and smaller and smaller and blah, 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 blah. And we can talk about that later. But I knew that I couldn't go and do certain things with my friends when I was 17 and washing dishes. And it was a hard thing for me to swallow. And it was over the course of, you know, high school and college and the years between that, um, that kind of passion really grew. I really, really, really wanted to be in food. I really wanted to make food. I found this wonderful creative outlet. Um, whether I was walking around in the woods or whether I was cooking at home, I found these things that I could manipulate in ways to make them taste wonderful and other people were excited about them and they could be very beautiful to look at. Um, I found that I could produce events, whether it was um, big dinners or it was big parties that really were a lot of fun to do. And I, I just, I just love doing it. Um, and I found that I could make it work financially, whether it was putting on parties and charging people money or like going to a concert and selling food out of the back of my car. I found ways to kind of make it work. And through high school, um, through college, I also was kind of trying to figure out other ways that I could be involved in the food world um, that weren't so challenging, that wasn't working on my feet that wasn't using my hands as much as my brain to make kind of smart decisions what is that whether it's writing or catering or doing other things aside from cooking on a line there's some way to do it and I tried really really hard to make those things work I got out of college and moved to New York with a whole bunch of friends and I had a wonderful wonderful time being here 
trying to be a part of food, larger and in quotation marks, you know, maybe all capital letters, but never found a rhythm. I never found a way that despite having tons of experience from, you know, however many years of being in the industry and, um, you know, using my education and, uh, you know, using all of my resources that were not part of that, I couldn't find a way to really make myself happy and engage in the world of food. This was also the time of the kind of dot-com explosion happening in New York, and I found myself working in software development companies. I, my last office in food was a couple blocks north on um, Broadway between Houston and Prince, and I had a wonderful time being there, but not with the work. So when the dot-com bubble was really bursting for the second or third time, um, I decided that I was going to get back out of software where I had found myself exclusively and back into food. During the years that I had been here, I found a love not just of um, kind of my own involvement with food, but the inspiration for other restaurants that were around me, the places that my friends were working at. I had a friend at that time who was working at Les Benas. You know, I live right down next to or a couple blocks away from the first iteration of the tasting room and had one of the finest meals that I ever had on my birthday there however many years ago. Um, there were so many things, um, you know, that were um, kind of inspiring during that period of time. I remember another birthday um, uh, when Blue Hill, New York had first opened up, having an amazing, amazing meal there. Um but th- those things coupled with the pleasure of sharing, you know, hey, we got this at the grocery store. Let's go sit in the park and have a picnic. Like those kinds of things really inspired me. And I decided to get out of New York and go back to where I could really um, study, where I could focus. And I went to work for a guy in uh, Connecticut that I had worked for before who I had not gotten along with at all. That's an interesting choice. Out of everywhere you could have gone, why did you do that? Because I knew he wouldn't let me get away with anything. I went to work for, and I had um, thought about going to culinary school, thought about knocking on the door at any you know number of different fine restaurants, but I thought of any one of a number of people that I want to learn how to hustle, learn about precision, um, learn about... Um, Learn, like, learn what I had forgotten in a way too that I should go work for Tom Moran um, and this is a guy who had worked for at the Mayflower a couple years before um, as first um, as a runner and a wait assistant and a back waiter um, and I stood next to him through services and just was tortured and pestered and you know I'm sure he would disagree with this but um, I got an incredible amount out of working for him at his restaurant, which had 13 tables. Um, and for a lot of time, it was just me and him in the kitchen. Um, and we were able to make what I thought was really fun food. Um, and I learned a lot from him about relating to guests. I learned a lot from him about making do with what we had around us. And I learned a lot from him about just saying yes. Saying yes is So huge. he was a real restaurateur chef. Um, this was his first restaurant, and it was the Petite Sarah. Yeah, yeah. Um, that had been going back one of the 
finest Belgian restaurants in uh, <laughs> Washington, Connecticut, which is also to say the only Belgian restaurants in Washington, Connecticut. And, you know, uh, he took this restaurant and made it his own. And he came from large hotels. He came from the Four Seasons. He came from this huge brigade. And it was me and him. And for, I'm, I don't know that... Um, it was as much an education, but he certainly had a lot to grow in making this his own kind of a place. So you got a ringside seat to seeing how he did it. A hundred percent. So let me move you along a little bit because then you went to work for people like Dan Barber and Michael Anthony and uh, even Martha Stewart. Yes. But did they leave as big a footprint on you as Tom Moran did? Absolutely. Yeah, the the things that I was able to learn from from Tom Moran were magical, but everything that I was able to learn from you know, like you said, everybody else that I've been lucky enough to work for, you know, after I left Blue, Tom Moran's, I went to work at Blue Hill, or Blue Hill at Stone Barns. Um, I think that they had been open for about a year or just a little bit less. Um, and it was a time of a magi- like magical exploration in the kitchen. And All right. Name one thing you picked up from Blue Hill. Wow. One, one thing just one only. Thing. Oh. No, yeah. I'm going to ask you one thing from each of these places. Because there were such wonderful places you were. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, I think the easy thing is it kind of... Well, I shouldn't say the easy thing because none of it is easy. But... Um, a, a respect, a respect for everything that goes into making a meal. Okay, the that's the soil. That's the sun. That's the oh wow the love is, yeah. that everybody has to bring. Whether it's their day off and they're coming in to get ahead on something, the love and the challenge and the emotion that goes into saying yes to something that you maybe don't have the control of but you are inspired to a point that you will deliver it you will magically make this thing occur because you love it so much michael anthony that's part mike anthony that's part oh because he he worked it (laughs) yeah the original blue hill for a while and what i'll say about you know working um for mike anthony is um you know the um, the care the care for everything that um, Mike does the care that he brings to the food to the people is amazing the way that he inspires people to work beyond their capacities not that it's beyond their capacities but to challenge them to grow to challenge them to care for each other Mm. um, and to make the ingredients taste like themselves is as good as it gets. And what did you learn at Martha Stewart? What did I learn about from Martha Stewart? I learned that I was never supposed to touch pastry, which is not really true. Um, My, uh, the, uh, one of the, um, people that taught me the most about pastry uh, a woman named Sarah Carey who is uh, um, very senior in the the food department there Um, and I forget exactly what she's doing now but running a lot of it Um, after my 
kind of initial cooking test immediately forbade me from touching anything related to pastry, but I think <laughs> seeded some of that uh, hard line to me over the years. Um, the process of development is what I would say I took away from Martha Stewart. What do you mean by that? Um, working in a development kitchen and trying to find the right way to make something work is a really different thing from working in a restaurant kitchen. Um, making a salad that isn't going to be made all a minute for each table again and again and again and again, but it's going to be made again and again and again and again and again so that a person at home can make it in as clear an approximation to the original is a very, very beautiful thing. Going through and saying, what do you have to do to make this taste great? Whether you're in this place or that place, whether you have these tools or this experience at your disposal, teaching somebody through a cookbook or a magazine how to cook or a TV show or a web video is really special work. And doing it to be empowering rather than taking, you know, the kind of traditional restaurant approach where it's belittling. Yeah. Hey, you don't know how to do this? Go back to the end of the line. Right. That's the opposite of what I think everything at Martha was really about. Wow, what an excellent statement. That's that's a great compliment to Martha and, and her show. I do think she brought so many people to another level of appreciation and cooking. Yeah. But I think we're going to have to take another break here, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Chef Story. And today my guest is Gabe McMacken uh, from The Finch in Brooklyn. Gabe, I mean, we keep, I, I could talk all day to you. I am, you know, <laughs> let's have dinner uh, if you didn't have to work. But uh, tell well, me about the Finch. come to The Finch. Yeah, I, I am. You better believe it. Uh, so tell me about The Finch. What, what was the conception of the restaurant? I know it only opened last year. I mean, you, you immediately catapulted, you know, to Michelin star. But what was your original, you know, here's your, it was, it's your first restaurant, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. What was your desire after working in all these great places and having all your experience? What was it that you wanted from your restaurant? Ooh, um, it's hard to put my finger on because I wanted so many things. I wanted to do a sandwich shop. I wanted to do a fine dining restaurant. I wanted to do, and I knew that I could, if I tried to do a thousand things at once, I would drive myself and my guests crazy and it wouldn't make any sense to anybody. Um, there were many, many businesses that I was kind of entertaining, and I looked for a long time for a space to kind of speak to me. And the space that I found uh, at 212 Green Avenue had a lot of character to begin with. It was kind of a vanilla box in, a, in the ground floor of a brownstone that after stripping away 80 years of 
construction, I found something that really asked to be what it was. I thought that I was going to have a 35-seat restaurant to do pretty casual, easy food, maybe a couple cooks in the kitchen, where we could do something pretty simple. And a month into the demolition process, the landlord gave me the basement, gave me a hallway to blow out a wall from. Um, We found this beautiful tin. We found a skylight. We found all of these wonderful things that allowed us to really change the landscape. Going from 35 to 75 meant Ooh. we had to made, make a lot of changes. Right. And um, that meant a lot of opportunities. Mm-hmm. And the way that the neighborhood around me, and I live two blocks away from the restaurant um, in Clinton Hill, which is, I mean, a magical neighborhood in its own right, has been growing over the past six years since I've been there. It's hard to put your finger on because it's always going to move into a different spot. The concept that maybe a year away from opening that I wanted to really focus on was something that was easy to um, say yes to, something that was fun, something that was beautiful, um, something that was maybe a little bit dressed up for some, but really casual and everyday for others, Um, something that could be um, an easy place to stop into for a glass of wine and a snack, but also someplace that could be Um, an easy place to have a longer, more elegant meal. Um, Not all things to all people. It's not a shot in a beer bar and it's not a, you know, pizza place. You're not going to come in for sushi. But if you want to come in for a salad, there has to be that sense of it's going to be a really good salad. And it's going to make you happy that you did stop in, that is. I felt like the neighborhood needed something like that. I felt like the neighborhood needed some place that wasn't serious quote unquote but something that you could really believe in the integrity of that sourcing was important to me that um the creativity was important and that while we weren't broadcasting it the craft was important it's not there to be showy but the craft is part of everything that we do it has to be the technique the the sourcing everything that we bring into that space has a why we're there because of this not a thing but we're there on purpose and when that comes through in the food it is a surprise when it comes through in the service it's a surprise we hope i don't want to because you, sure. you because you don't want it to be too stiff that it's a casual place but when you get that kind of excellence You're surprised that can be delivered in that space. So has the Michelin star kind of blown up your your desire to have this as a casual place? Are people, you know, coming in? Do you see these uh, Europeans coming in with the Michelin guide under their arm and expecting a one-star Michelin experience? Uh, Or has Michelin changed and you're redefining it? I, I think there's a little bit of both. I don't, I don't know that I can say how Michelin has changed. Um, I think, or that we have changed. I do, th- you know, we had a couple come in and sit at the uh, the kitchen counter the other day who told us that they were going to ick. That's a guess that we wouldn't have had before the guide came out this year. So we definitely have a lot more faith from our guests and a lot more enthusiasm. So, hey, we put this weird thing on the menu. Well, it might not be the guy that was coming in 
from down the street that would be enthusiastic about it. You know, maybe it's the person who's sitting next to him that would order it. But that guy that's sitting next to him that's been coming in for since we opened wants to know what it is. So I feel like, in other words, we still have the faith of our neighborhood, Michelin Guide or not. And I'm so enthusiastic about that, that it is a beautiful um, conversation on both sides of the guide. How close do you get with your patrons? I hope very close. Some of them I, um, you know, am so grateful to have had come back on a weekly basis. So do you get to know them by name? Yeah. Do you go out and talk to the tables? Absolutely. I wanted to set this space up. We have no barriers in the kitchen. It is ent- entirely open. Um, I wanted to make it feel like we were all part of the same experience. That it's not like, you know, I'm sending food out into the void and it's not like the guest is finding something that's just kind of randomly occurred that happens to be delicious. That it's a conversation. Not just restaurant to neighborhood, but dish to dish. Kitchen to server to guest. It's all about that same kind of connection that a lot of restaurants don't really get the chance to celebrate. Did you spend any time out in California or in Europe or do you have a do you have a point of view about regionality, seasonality, sense of place? New England. Yeah. I never cooked in France or Paris. I mean, I never mm. France or Paris. <laughs> <laughs> I never cooked outside of the states really. I mean, I've been part of dinners here and there and I've certainly I've, I've been lucky enough to travel a lot, but um the thing that grounds me is the traditions that my family set in this part of the world. The foods that grow in New York State are amazing to me. That grow wild here, that grow, that we can grow in the amazing, amazing soil in this part of the world. From grains to asparagus, like, why would I bother with Belgian asparagus when I can get Hadley grass? It's amazing. It's so good. We can do these things here, and I want so much to celebrate them at the Finch and, you know, in life in general. Mm. Um, that That is, I think, what um, also makes the most sense on a given day. If it's freezing cold outside, I don't want to eat this or that. And if it's roasting hot outside, I don't, don't want to eat something else. Mm-hmm. When we focus on the foods that are most appropriate of time and place and of the season, I think it has that connection to what your body's asking for. How did you choose the name of the restaurant? Uh, it's really from three kind of important things. Um, it's named for Charles Darwin. Oh. Um, the Galapagos Finch. Yeah. yeah and yeah. the kind of linchpin, linchpin to the theory of evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, it uh, is named for uh, a time of year and a beautiful bird that makes a magic transformation during that time of year. Um, growing up in Litchfield County, Connecticut, growing up in Woodbury, um, watching the goldfinch change from this kind of camouflage brown to this resplendent gold um, when the first grasses were coming out of the ground and the crocus were blooming and the forsythia were just starting to pop um, the smells of spring were amazing 
and this magic of turning from brown to gold and like starting to sing is just a special time in in my memory that I really love kind of tying the name of the Finch to and that um, surprise of a pop of gold sitting on a bare branch. Um, the Finch is named for that magical transformation, is ma- named for a sense of evolution, and is named for something that is so personal as that moment in time to me. And I hope as people come into the Finch or as they travel out into the world that they are able to have those kinds of experiences, that they're able to learn, they're able to develop in their own ways. If you weren't a chef, what do you think you might be doing now? I regularly want to add other careers. That's I, a nice, that's, that, I think that's a great thought. I would love to be. Uh, I would be love to be designing furniture or doing industrial design. The number of things that I feel like we created in the process of building out this restaurant over the year and a half that took us, uh, that I will hopefully remember half of or a quarter of. Um, I I would be busy for years just kind of bringing these th- things into being. Um, I'd love to um, make photographs for a living. I'd love to. Uh, uh, be an architect, or I'd love to, um, you know, take definitely the creative arts. Definitely the creative arts. Yes. Do you see yourself staying in New York the whole time for your career, or at least for the next twenty years? I love being where I am. I think uh, to create a conversation in this neighborhood is one sphere. There are so many other spheres of New York. Um, you know, the kind of uh, ways that we can take our message to people or you know have that conversation in this location or that location I'm not saying that we want to open up the Finch you know wherever you know Finch 2 in this neighborhood but there are ways that we can um, tell our story uh, that will relate to guests a little bit differently but I feel like there's a strong draw to be a part of other communities as well to tell our story um, in you know different parts of New England or you know places. I, where I would it's think warm. you need to go back up to Washington and and do something there. It's I such a special place. That. It yeah. really is. Well, I think we um, have spent our time, <laughs> and um, I've really really enjoyed this. It's been. Um, you're a very calming influence. Like I would, I want to come to the Finch and see how you run your kitchen. Oh, it, because kitchens are so high stress and kind of high strung because you know the the pace has to be quite, as you said with Tom Moran, you know, and really get it out there. And yeah. uh, but you have such a lovely way about you, and well, I can see. You. I was just thinking because uh, this is today's January 2016, and we're inundated with the um, primaries that are going to take place in Iowa and New Hampshire. And Hillary Clinton was quoted yesterday of saying, "You know, running for president is poetry; governing and being president is prose." <laughs> and and okay. I, I was thinking that just as you were speaking, because you're so poetic. You know, and you you paint such wonderful pictures. But when you get into the kitchen, it's definitely prose. But yeah. I think you're probably one of the few chefs that can marry the two. Well, that's very kind. <laughs> well, I've been lucky enough to work for a lot of people that do that very, very well. Well, I have the ideas to back up the the practical work that they do, and they are a great inspiration. Well, it was great to have you here today. Great to be here. All Thanks right. very Thanks, much. Thanks, Gabe.
And I want to do a shout out to my producers, Jack Innes and Robin Cohen, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.